Good morning, Resurrection Church. My name is Nathan Mayer. Uh, you've already heard that because like three people have prayed for me so far. It's because I'm the new guy, so they, they make sure I get covered by a little extra prayer. It's because it's I need it. So thank you all for praying for me. Uh, we just had such an awesome time in church the last few weeks, haven't we? I was sitting up there in front, and it was like, Gosh, these people are loud singing behind me. I love to hear you sing. It doesn't matter if you are the best singer or the worst singer. I love to hear you sing. It just brings so much joy to my heart. Uh, just yesterday, we had our all hands meeting. How many of y'all went to the all hands? Um, we did something kind of fun in there. We worshiped and we sang songs. And then we, we did honoring, where basically... The staff, we, we got the, the privilege of getting to honor other people. Um, we got to look around the church for the ways that God was moving in unique or special ways in the lives and hearts of you all, and just call that out from the stage. And a lot of the things that were honored, I hadn't thought of or heard of before we got there. And I was surprised because I found myself kind of, kind of tearing up because it was just, just such a beautiful thing to see God at work in the lives of regular people like you and me, all the ways that we see and that we don't see, because you and I know that's not us, right? That's not you. Uh, if you were honored, whether you were honored or not, you know that the work that God is doing in your heart is something miraculous, something powerful, something that, gosh, we were never able to do on our own. Isn't that just such a beautiful miracle that we get to be these new creations in Christ and that through that, we get to bear fruit. We get to make a difference. We get to build God's kingdom together. Such a special thing. So Daniel and Vance, they've been preaching through Ephesians chapter two and have just been, been killing it. And uh, Ephesians two is just the, might be the easiest chapter in the whole Bible to preach just because it's so much stinking fun. It's the gospel laid out about as clearly as you can have it. We were dead in our sins, but we've been made alive together with Christ. We've been saved, but not by our works, by grace. By grace, we've been saved through faith. And we haven't just been saved from our sins. We haven't just been saved from something, but we've been saved to something to be new creations, to be God's workmanship, his masterpiece, to do good works that build his kingdom and forever, for all eternity, participate with him in this new creation, this new world that he's building, that he's making, and that we get to participate in. It's such a beautiful gospel. Um, we've been made one through the cross, you and I, no matter how different we are, no matter how many things we might disagree over, whether we vote for different people or like different movies, you might, even, you might even be a DC fan instead of a Marvel fan. We can still be friends because of the gospel. And then finally, we're being built into a holy temple in the Lord. We're, we're where God's presence dwells now. And for all eternity, we're never gonna have to be far from God again. There's never gonna be a day where God is, is distant from me, but he's always going to be with me and he's always going to be with you. And wherever we go and whatever we do, he's near to us. He's with us. He lives within us. So Ephesians 2 is just this beautiful, marvelous picture of the grace of God poured out on us. And as we dig into Ephesians chapter 3 today, uh, they, 
these verses draw out just how amazing it is that we're included in this story at all. Like we've seen how amazing the gospel is, but we haven't quite gotten the chance to dig into how, how surprising it is, how shocking it is, how uh, mysterious it is that people like you and me who are so very far from God get to be a part of this story at all. So today we'll talk about that mystery, why it caught the world by surprise, and how the gospel shocked everyone by including people like you and me. If you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, I'll read the whole passage for us. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he kind of does this aside um, for the rest of the passage. So you can almost just, uh, the, the first verse there is just an introduction. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, you and I, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Amen. So, Paul starts off by essentially defending his authority to, to be saying something as amazing that, uh, that you and I, people who are far from God, people who weren't Jews, could be included in the gospel. Now, uh, Paul had to defend his authority because there was false teaching, there was rejection of authority, but we don't have any of that today, right? So we don't have to worry about, we don't have to worry about defending Paul anymore, right? He's, he's just... No, uh, Paul actually has to defend his apostolic authority in a lot of his letters because turns out people have always been kind of rebellious. We've always been kind of stubborn. And uh, Paul, Paul wasn't the most natural person to look up to. It sounded like he might have had some physical disabilities that made it hard to listen to him. He might not have been the most natural speaker, the most natural orator. And he wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. So Paul is continually having to defend his apostolic authority to preach the gospel. Um, so just like we face false teachers today, doctrinal error and rejection of authority, Paul also had to face those challenges. And today, uh, people who are um, far from God or, or even people in the church, there's a lot of folks who would love to write off Paul today, right? Because where Jesus paints pictures of what the kingdom of God looks like, Paul brings it down to the, the dark outlines where he basically says, you can be within these areas and you can't go outside of this. Paul's the one drawing hard lines, like um, saying that uh, men and women are actually, we have different roles and we can celebrate those different roles instead of doing away with them. And we can celebrate God's vision for marriage and sexuality being between a man and a woman instead of uh, whatever we decide we want to make it today. Um, we get a lot of our salvation by grace through faith from Paul. And so a lot of people who want to add things to the gospel like to write off Paul as well. And so Paul is a frequent target of liberal scholarship today, where if you 
are reading the wrong books and listening to the wrong people, you will be sure that Paul is preaching a different gospel even than Jesus Christ. But we know that Paul doesn't get his authority from us, right? Paul didn't get his authority from uh, men or from people who decided to believe his letters, but Paul gets his authority from Jesus Christ. So in Galatians chapter one, verses 11 through 12, Paul says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me, that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul didn't get his gospel from people. It wasn't like he went to Jerusalem when the apostles were all hanging out there and asked them what the gospel was so he could go preach it. But if you'll remember, when Paul is going to Damascus to persecute the Christians, he's blinded by a flash of light. And Jesus himself is, uh, appears before him and says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, Lord, who are you? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. And Paul believes he becomes a missionary pretty quickly, but he doesn't go straight to Jerusalem. He heads into Arabia. And for three years, he actually is taught by Jesus Christ himself. So just like Peter and John and James and all of the apostles were taught by Jesus, Paul himself was taught by Jesus as well. It's not from apostles. It's not from us that Paul gets his authority. It is from Jesus Christ. And then furthermore, uh, when we look at the book of Acts, we see just example after example of Paul's authority. The Jerusalem council eventually approves the gospel that Paul is teaching we see great miracles being done by him time and time again, where people would even bring um, objects of clothing that Paul had touched and lay it on sick people and they would be healed. So God witnessed to Paul's authority through miracles and divine intervention. And then finally, in case y'all just want to write off the letters that he wrote, we see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, Peter actually refers to Paul's letters as scripture, as the word of God, like they were already written in the Old Testament. Second Peter 3, 15 through 16 says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter's already looking at Paul's writings as scripture here. So this is important, right? Because Paul had to defend his authority then, and he has to defend his authority today. Uh, there's a lot of things in the Bible that you and I might not like. I was raised in a secular home. Um, there were a lot of things in the Bible when reading through for the first time or the first few times I found offensive and I couldn't imagine that God would possibly design his world this way. And something I figured out, sort of a rule of thumb that I could commend to you is if you're not sure whether something in the Bible is true, just assume it's true and let God prove you wrong. Just live like it's true and you'll find out, gosh, somebody who wrote this knows a lot more about how the world works than I do. Because... You can think that, say, I'll take, I'll take men and women's roles. You can 
think that complementarianism is an outdated idea where men and women have different roles. But when you start treating your wife or your loved ones like they are really this uh, precious gift from God to uh, create beauty and gentleness, and they're not actually just like another guy that you can hang out with and... and um, expect to like all the things that guys like and do all the things that guys do. Funny how things work better, right? Um, a lot of the scriptures that way, I would commend to you, if you're not sure if something in the Bible is true, just trust that it is and let God prove you wrong. I've been doing that for eight years now and I've never been proved wrong so far. So trust that it's true, let God prove you wrong. Now the whole reason Paul is, is prefacing his statements here with this claim to authority is because what he's going to say right now is, is kind of surprising. It's different, right? Paul was a Jew and Jews were a part of this national religion that pretty much excluded everybody except for Jews. So um, God had chosen his special people, the descendants of Abraham, to be a blessing to the nations, but it always looked like the blessing was supposed to come through them, through them specifically. Uh, so we're going to look at verses four and five. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So we see this mystery, right? A mystery in the Bible is always something that God is revealing. It's a mystery revealed, something that was hidden that's now been made known, something that was secret that has now been shown to the world, usually through Jesus Christ. And uh, this mystery wasn't available to people of past generations. It was something that was hidden. The prophets couldn't see it. The, uh, the sons of men and other generations couldn't see it, but it's now been revealed to people like Paul and to the prophets and apostles of the New Testament church. Um, this gospel is that Gentiles, people like you and me, we get to participate in the kingdom of God. We don't just get to be like uh, secondary citizens or the sort of unwanted extras. We don't have to wait three generations to be able to enter into the temple because we're so unclean and so impure. But Jesus, by his power and grace, has brought those, like we saw in chapter two, who are far from God, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And by grace, we have been saved. So looking at why this is so, let's look at why this is so shocking. Let's look at why this is so surprising there was always a plan to bless the nations through Abraham, right? God, from the beginning, has planned to bless all of the nations, everyone, through Abraham. And we can see that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whom who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the Jews accepted that. They bought that. They knew that God had plans to, in some sense, basically use the people of Israel to bring everyone in the whole world into submission to God's law, they thought, into submission to God's authority. But nobody, nobody expected that instead of 
They always expected that the blessing would come through Abraham's children, through Abraham's offspring. Nobody expected that the Gentiles would become Abraham's offspring. The Gentiles, we took generations to enter the temple. It was three generations before uh, Gentiles' descendants, their family, could even go into the temple or be included in Jewish rituals. Jesus himself actually has referred to people like you and me as dogs and evildoers. It's not exactly an endearing, <laughs> an endearing term, right? Some of you might really like dogs. They did not like dogs. So uh, think more like the, the, the stray dog, that, that, that chihuahua, you know, that chases you around like it's um, super tough and tries to bite your heels. We, we, were, those, we were those dogs. <laughs> um, and Gentiles, we were, we were enthralled by pegging gods, by unjust practices and immoral lifestyles. The world to whom Paul is writing right now, there were idol temples on every corner. They would practice um, ritual prostitution and exploitation. There was slavery all around them. Basically, the entire world that they were built on was against God, against his ways, and against the thing that he loves and values. So we were pretty far, right? There didn't seem like there was a lot of hope. It didn't seem like there was a plan to really redeem these kind of people, these people who were so far from the kingdom of God. But as Paul declares in Romans, quoting the prophet Hosea, Romans 9, 25 through 26, indeed, as God says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And in Galatians, Paul says, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So this was just a shocking change because you and I, guys, we're not just secondary, uh, optional citizens of the kingdom of God. It's not like God was just getting so tired of the Jews that he was like, ah, we'll give the Gentiles a shot and see how they do. God doesn't throw it plot twists into his story um, on a whim. God is a good author. God is writing a beautiful story. He's been planning the story from the beginning of time. And it was always his plan. It was always his desire that people like you and me, who are very far from God, who naturally have no place being in God's presence, in God's house, in God's family, that you and I, who were called not my people, would be called sons of the living God. That is a beautiful hope. That is a beautiful thing. Now, this, this hope, though, that we have, right, it can seem so nebulous to us. It can seem kind of like it's just up in the air somewhere, like, yeah, I've been saved from my sins, and maybe I'll get to go to heaven one day, and while I'm here, I can do, do some better things and be a better person. But again and again, the Bible calls us not to just have this nebulous idea of what our hope is, but to really, um, to really understand it, to dream about it, to, to put all of our hope in it. 
because the, the Bible, they're not, it's not making some uh, abstract claim that things are going to be better now that you're a Christian. It tells you exactly what is going to change. It tells you that you have a new heart in Jesus Christ, that the heart of stone that was in you has become a heart of flesh. It tells you that a new spirit is being put in you, this very spirit of God, so that you'll never be alone, you'll never be separated, and forever you'll have the power, the power of God at work inside of you. Um, And so verse six, verse six is sort of like Paul's been uh, getting ready to take his, his big home run swing. You know, he's got the, got the wiggle going on. He defended his authority. He talked about how amazing it is that we get to be a part of the story. And then he's just going to take that home run swing in verse six and knock it out of the park. So we're going to spend a lot of time digging into just this verse, verse six, and talk about just how awesome, how awesome our hope is in the gospel. So verse six, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We're fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this is where Paul is just laying out the mystery. This is the mystery revealed. This is the thing that was hidden that's been made known. This is the thing that is so shocking and amazing is that people like you and me get to be fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be heirs? What does it mean to be heirs? Um, my parents, by God's grace, are all, all still alive. So I've never experienced an inheritance in the sense of inheriting our, our parents' wealth when they pass away. Um, but many of you have, I'm sure, right? And when your loved ones have passed away in the past, there's no question about whether you deserve to inherit their wealth, right? It's, it's almost their joy to pass on the things that have been provided to them onto you. And so whether they have a, a, just a few, a few dollars in the bank or a house and uh, a nice car to pass down to you, they're excited, they're, they're thrilled to get to include you in their inheritance, to get to share the blessings that they've received with, with you as their heirs. We're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about that concept. In Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27, we see that we're not just um, Christ's family. We're actually his bride. We're his beloved one. We're his treasure. We're that, that person that he looks at. And even though sometimes we feel like we've got lots of warts and wrinkles and spots and blemishes, he's just like, that is one good looking woman. Uh, he, he is so pleased with us when he looks at us. Um, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church, that's us, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We're beloved by Christ. And the reason why we, we experience these trials and we have these hardships, it's not for no purpose, but Christ 
He's, he's washing us. He's cleansing us. He's preparing us so that on that last day when the trumpet sounds and Christ returns and we all celebrate that Jesus is making all things right, he can present you and I to himself as his perfect bride, flawless, spotless, not a mark or speck on us because of his transforming and sanctifying love for us. So we are Christ's bride. We're also co-heirs with Christ. So this is, this is shocking. This is scandalous. This is why Paul has to back up his authority. We are co-heirs with Christ. And so in as much as Christ is God's son, you and I are God's sons and daughters. In as much as Christ inherits the kingdom of God, you and I inherit the kingdom of God. The book of Hebrews says that Christ, he's not even ashamed to call us brothers. Me, I'm almost a little embarrassed to be called Jesus's brother because it's, it's sort of like having the brother who is the track star and, you know, starts a prominent business and you're just over here. Maybe you're like the, the bus driver or something. And, and it's, a, it's not a bad thing, right? It's great to be a bus driver, but when you compare yourself to the, the track star businessman uh, who, you know, your parents love and, and tell everybody about, it can be a little, you can feel a little embarrassed, right? By comparison. But Christ says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers because we are fellow heirs with him. Um, Romans eight seventeen says, and if we are God's children, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But there's a condition here, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So again, you might have troubles, you might have trials. I promise you those trials and troubles, they're not for no purpose. God is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. When you go through those hard times, when God, when you feel like God is leading you through the valley and it's not even through the shallow part, but it's right through the, the deepest, darkest bottom of that valley, God has a noble and glorious purpose for it. He wants to prepare you for the great responsibility that he's assigned to you, which is to inherit the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ. We're entrusted with authority and responsibility as co-heirs, right? Um, how many of you guys were shocked the first time you learned about what prayer really is? Like how, how powerful prayer can really be? I remember being surprised, being kind of um, put, put off by the claims that the Bible makes about the power of prayer. But you and I, through prayer, we participate in moving the hand of God to fulfill his plans in the world. When the people of God pray, miracles happen. When the people of God pray, God's plans are accomplished. We were talking about George Mueller yesterday. This one guy decided to just put all his chips on the table and trust God with a life of obedience. He never raised a dollar by asking for it, for his ministry. And yet by the end of his ministry, he had founded enough orphanages to meet the needs of over 10,000 children whose parents, had, uh, whose parents had died. And he also gave away over $8 million in the process of that faithful lifetime. Now, I read his biography. There were long years, long years, where George Mueller had everything he needed and not one penny more 
And his definition of everything he needed had to change a lot sometimes because he might think, oh yeah, I really need that uh, new top hat and jacket. And then all of a sudden there's no money for top hats and jackets if you want to feed your, your, your orphan kids. And so uh, God redefines what enough is. But nonetheless, um, through faith, through prayer, we have great power to move the hand of God to fulfill his plans for this world. We're also called to fulfill the Great Commission. Um, I've got a buddy here in the, the audience who I, I sit behind in church, and it seems like every week he's got like the whole pew full, and it's new people every time, it seems like. And I'm, I'm just shocked and amazed at this guy's passion to fulfill the Great Commission through the work of evangelism and just, just inviting people. We have a great responsibility to bring the world into fellowship with Jesus Christ. And then finally, guys, I'm a heaven nerd. Uh, I love talking about heaven. I love talking about what things are going to be like when uh, in the sweet by and by. Uh, I feel like half the time I'm just like, Lord, send a chariot. I don't even want to, I don't even want to do it anymore. Just send me a chariot. Um, or I think it might've actually been the whirlwind. No, no, no. The whirlwind was the trick. The chariot was the one that you wanted. Yeah. Send me a chariot. I want to go just sweep down, swing low, sweet chariot and take me on to, take me on to glory. But um, anyway, uh, <laughs> we will inherit riches and responsibility that we can't even imagine or, or whatever think ourselves worthy of. Jesus, in all of his parables, he's not saying you should be obedient or make great sacrifices because it's the right thing to do. He's saying it's ridiculous to do anything else because the riches and promises he offers us for our obedience are so great that it's um, beyond our imagining. It's, it's scandalous, really. He says, are you going to be responsible for 10 talents? Then I'll give you 10 talents more. Are you going to be responsible for uh, a stewardship here on earth? Then I'll put you over 10 cities in my new kingdom. God, he's not preparing us to just be uh, sitting there on fluffy clouds playing harps all day. He's preparing us to participate in a, a new creation that is going to last forever and it's going to be eternally beautiful. And your talents will matter and your skills will matter. Your work will matter. It's not just fluffy clouds and harps. It's so much more. It's work, it's family, it's fun, it's love. And, and, and it is worship. And you know, if, if I get to learn to play a harp in heaven, I'm cool with that too, because that sounds like fun. But heaven is a glorious inheritance. It's a wonderful promise. Um, we're also members of the same body, members of one body. I don't have as much time to dig into this as I'd like. So I'm actually going to let Paul do most of the talking for me here. You and I are members of a body and I, people like to make jokes. I think we make them from stage a lot. But um, some people like to say, well, I'm the small intestine of the body, you know, or I'm the, um, I'm the unpleasant parts, you know, that nobody really likes to talk about. But even the Bible says that those modest parts are actually given more honor. Those things are more honorable. So it's okay. If, if you really are the small intestine, that's great, because I really need my small intestine. I'm glad it's there. Um, I'll let Paul do the talking. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 26. For the body, you and I, the church, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. 
If the foot should say, but I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, but I'm not an eye, so I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all are honored together. You and I were one, even though a lot of times it doesn't feel like it. When you celebrate something, some part of me was designed, was made to celebrate it with you. When you suffer, some part of me was designed to suffer with you, to carry that with you. Um, we were honoring folks yesterday at All Hands, and I was just tearing up listening to my brothers and sisters get honored because in some sense, I got to share. Even though I wasn't, my name wasn't up there, I wasn't one of the people who got called out. I got to share in their honor because y'all are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you're honored, I'm honored. When you rejoice, I rejoice. When you celebrate, I get to celebrate too because we're one body. There's no, there's no separation. There's no difference. If you suffer, I suffer. If you rejoice, I get to rejoice. We're one. We're one. And then finally, we get to be partakers of the promise, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, what is this promise? You and I, we, we've received something. If we're, if we're sitting here, if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've received something amazing. Um, the promise of Christ Jesus is that despite our past, despite our separation from God, despite our distance, that through Jesus Christ, this man who, who came and who lived, this man who walked on the earth for 33 years, not, in, uh, not as God basically walking around and stomping around on earth and doing whatever he wanted, but as, as a man filled with the spirit, Jesus walked this earth for 33 years, submitting himself to the will of God, doing the will of God through the spirit, fulfilling the law, teaching, preaching, defeating the kingdom of darkness through miracles and prayer and faith. And then, and then he was rejected. Instead of being received by his people, he was rejected and despised and looked down on. He was hated. Uh, Isaiah talks about him as the sheep who um, was, even though he, he, he had no wrong, um, he, he bore our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. When his people rejected him, they didn't just say, ah, go, go somewhere else. We don't want you anymore. They accused him falsely of blasphemy, of cursing the name of God. 
They put him on trial, this, this mock trial, this kangaroo court, where they struck him and beat him. They treated Jesus shamefully, despite the work that they had seen him do. And then they handed him over to the Romans to put him to death on the cross, to, to crucify him, to crucify the Son of God, the Lord of glory. He was put to shame. He was held up for everyone to see in his, his nakedness, in his woundedness, in his dishonor, in his shame. But something miraculous happened there because when the Roman king uh, is putting Jesus up on the cross, it wasn't Jesus's shame, it was his glory. It wasn't Jesus's defeat, but it was his enthronement. That cross was Jesus's throne. That was when Jesus ascended and took his seat at the right hand of God in power because it was on that cross that he bore the wrath of God for you and I. All of the sin that you and I have committed, he took upon himself. It says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And through that substitution, through that taking of sin upon himself, he bore all of the wrath of God for our sins, for our iniquities. He was buried and he, he, the, the disciples, they gave up hope. They thought it was the end of the story. But through his righteousness, through his power, through the Holy Spirit at work within him and by the sovereign will of God, Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day. He rose again. He broke out of the tomb. And after 40 days of appearing to the apostles, he ascended into heaven, into glory. And guys, today he's not... I feel like this is something that shouldn't need to be said, but it does. He's not dead. Jesus isn't dead today. Jesus is alive. Jesus, he's not just sitting in heaven waiting for the show to be over, but Jesus is sitting, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God in power and authority so that nothing that happens today is out of his control or out of his authority. Guys, you, you aren't... Um, beyond his help. You're not outside of his authority. There's nothing that he can't do, accomplish, or control because all authority under heaven and earth has been given to him. So as he sits at the right hand of God, he's there making intercession for us. And he's there inviting us, inviting people like you and me who might today be very far, be very far from God who might be sitting comfortably in our pews for many years, but never have actually encountered the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in our hearts. And he invites us, he implores us, he pleads with us, come and be reconciled to God through me. Come be reconciled to God through the person of Jesus Christ. He became sin, not so that we could just say thanks and high five him and walk away, but so that we could fall at his feet in worship so that we could fall at our feet in thanksgiving, so that we could fall at Jesus's feet in repentance and humility and submit ourselves to a life of discipleship, to following Jesus, to saying, Lord, no longer my will, no longer my plans, no longer my story, but yours. I don't want, I don't want to be me anymore. I want to be the person you always intended for me to be. Now, we sometimes talk about an invitation to invite Jesus into our hearts. But uh, when Jesus makes that claim in Revelation, he's actually talking to Christians. So y'all can invite Jesus into your hearts today if you've been stubborn or unrepentant or unforgiving. 
we probably need to open the door and invite Jesus in, uh, in that respect. But um, for those of us who don't know Christ, who aren't his friends, who haven't been reconciled to God, what he really asks us to do is he asks us to bend the knee, to, to bend the knee before him and to um, submit ourselves to a life that isn't according to our will anymore, but is according to his, to a life where um, instead of seeking our own righteousness, instead we say, God, you've given me all the righteousness I will ever need, all the, all, all the righteousness I could ever possess. I can't add anything to your righteousness. Your righteousness is already enough for me. Um, he invites us to receive that righteousness by confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Come bend the knee before Jesus with me. Um, let's, let's trust in him. Let's walk with him. And if you're already a Christian today, gosh, if you're like me, you need to be reminded of that every single day. It's not a command to take up our cross monthly or biannually and follow me. It's a command to take up the cross daily and follow him. So if you're far from God today, I would invite you to come up and pray with one of our elders. They'll be up here in front. Um, Jesus is not far from you. You are not far from him. If you're here today, he is very near and he is working in your heart. If you are here today, um, and if you are already a follower of Jesus, rejoice that you have salvation. Rejoice that you're an heir. Rejoice that you get to be a part of the body and the family of God. Let me pray for you. Father, as we close out today, we know that your gospel really is enough for us. And we say that and we, we don't always mean it, but Lord, I can't add anything to the work that you've already accomplished for me on the cross. You called me an heir. You called me a member of the body. You allowed me to receive the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I didn't do any of that. I haven't contributed anything to that. So Lord, as I look out into this audience, I pray that um, for those of them who don't know you, for those of them who are, who are far from you, I pray that they would bend the knee to Jesus Christ, that they would uh, repent of sin and turn away from it and submit to the will, to the good and kind and gracious and gentle will of Jesus Christ to be guided and shepherded by him. And for those of us who have walked with Christ for many years, I pray that you would humble our hearts again. Let us take up our cross and follow you in faith, knowing that you've already accomplished everything. You've already written the story. And it's our privilege, it's our joy to walk with you as fellow heirs and members of the body. I pray this in Jesus' name.